Somebody move my light. You don't have a ladder? Good thing I memorized this. <clears throat> the story is told of a young, young man by the name of Joe who was taking a course in ornithology, which is the study of birds. The night before the biggest test of the term, Joe spent all night studying. He had, uh, you know, he had the textbook nearly memorized. He knew his class notes forward and backwards. Joe was ready to go. So the morning of the test, he entered the auditorium filled with confidence. He took a seat in the front row, and on the table in front of him was a row of ten stuffed birds. Each bird had a sack covering its body, and only the legs were showing. When class started, the professor announced that the students were to identify each bird by looking at its legs and give its common name, genus, species, habitat, mating habits, and anything else they wanted to share about their understanding of the birds. Joe looked at each of the birds' legs, and you know what? They all looked the same to him. And the more he looked at the legs, the angrier he got because this wasn't in any of his notes. He stayed up all night studying for this test. He thought he could identify them. There's no way in the world he was going to be able to do it by looking at their legs. And the longer he thought about it, the angrier that he got. And finally, in frustration, he walked down, he took his paper, he sat on a professor's desk, and he said, you know what, this is the biggest ripoff of a test I've ever had to sit and endure. That's not even right. That's not even fair. You never told anything about studying its legs. I can tell you everything and anything, but I can't recognize a bird by its legs. I've had enough. And he just walked, he stormed out. Man, he made a big scene in front of everybody. And the professor kind of caught a little bit off guard, looked at him and said, hey, hey, son, what's your name? And he stopped and just stopped as he got to the door. He said, you want to know my name? (laughs) Here, tell me my name. (laughs) And he held up his leg. You know, and it's like, as I thought about it, what a great story. And it reminds me of the passage that we're going to be examining today in our ongoing study through the Gospel of Luke. Because in Luke chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me there. We'll witness folks who, like Joe, were confident in themselves until Jesus tested the depth of their knowledge and beliefs. So if you've got your Bible, Luke chapter 4, we're going to pick up the account as we find it starting in verse 14. We read these words. It says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah... When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. In this passage, we're going to examine two simple thoughts as they relate to this passage as far as an idea or outline is concerned. In the first verses of verses 14 through 22, we see that people responded with amazement when Jesus taught them in the synagogues. As he taught them and brought them the word of God, we notice that all eyes were fixed on him. They can't, couldn't wait to hear what he had to say about the passage that had been chosen that day to be read. And we're told that there was, there was a buzz or an excitement and enthusiasm. There was the kind of a spiritual high that was found in this section as we look at this. But it quickly gets ugly as we see, as the second half of this passage indicates, that people reacted with anger as he exposed their unbelief. You know, as I was thinking about this and trying to come up with a title for the sermon, it became very apparent to me that, you know, we can praise Jesus and yet reject him as our Savior. Mankind can praise him for many things and yet reject him as God's chosen Savior to the world. Praised yet rejected. That's what we see happening in this passage and how quickly it turns. And we'll talk more about that. So we'll take a look at the first part of that. And that is that people responded with amazement to the teaching of Jesus. Bishop J.C. Ryle of the Church of England wrote this in his commentary on Luke. He said, It is vain to conceal from ourselves that there are thousands of persons in Christian churches in little better state of mind than our Lord's hearers at Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it while they listen. They don't dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. But their religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon sermon hearing does not prevent them living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin like what we hear, but it just doesn't change how we live. We can praise him, and yet we can still reject him. And it sums up perfectly the scene that has taken place here as we look at this. In verse 14, if you'll look at that, it says that after Jesus returned, it was after the temptation, and and even more importantly than that, we're told that after his temptation in verse 14, that Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit. 
If you recall from our last message that it was Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit who was also led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he would be tempted in all things and yet without sin. We learned that he fleshed out our enemy, the devil, and we began to see the tactics of our enemy so that you and I could be better equipped in order to defeat the devil as we're tempted in life to do those things that are wrong before God. He was exposed for who he is. He's a liar that makes promises that never delivers. And he has a certain tactic or strategy that he continues to use throughout the centuries. And there's nothing new to the strategy or the schemes of the devil as we find in Ephesians chapter 6. So you and I had best be aware of those strategies or schemes or tactics so that we do not fall and fail in temptation. Jesus, well aware of the strategies of the enemy, also gave us, a, a, gave us a very good idea of how we can defeat temptation in our life and live a victorious life. And the key is found in this passage where we're told that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's only one way you and I could ever defeat or, or have victory over temptation, and that is to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And the Spirit of God lives within those of us who have come to trust in Jesus Christ, His death upon the cross and the power of His resurrection, who have recognized God's standard as perfection and realized that we fall short and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. We go to the cross and trust in Christ as our Savior. And the Bible says at that point that we're baptized into one body, the church, and that the Spirit of God also lives within us. That's why Paul said, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who even live, but Christ who lives within me. And we're told to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. To live a life that's worthy and a life that is worthy of our calling. And over and over again, we're encouraged and reinforced you know, and admonished through Scripture to live such a life. You know, temptation will do one, or two, one of two things. Uh, it will either strengthen a person to continue their walk with the Lord and overcome temptation. Or it will weaken us if we give in and yield to it. Jesus' life is a life of victory, and we see that he was tempted in all ways as you and I are tempted, and yet he had no sin. And he walked victorious as he served God the Father and the plan of God to redeem mankind. So as we look at this, we need to recognize and understand one thing is very true, and that is this, that you cannot yield to temptation without it, without it costing a tremendous price in your walk with God. And the more that we yield and give in, the further we disintegrate, so to speak, to a point where we really are of no value to the kingdom of God or the plan of God. There's no compromise. We cannot yield. We cannot give in. We've got to recognize that we're in a spiritual battle. And we're only as strong for God's kingdom as we are in the weakest area of our life. And so I challenge you as I challenge myself and I exhort you and implore you that if there's any area of your life where you're compromising before God, recognize and understand there is no such thing as a little compromise. There is no such thing as little sin in the economy of God. We need to confess our sins. And God says he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to repent from sin, which means that we turn from it and we start, we start a new day with God, and thankfully His mercies are new every morning, and we can start fresh and clean today and serve Him today, regardless of our failures yesterday. It's a wonderful truth that our God is a God not only of second chances and third and fourths, but if He told Peter that we're to forgive 70 times 7, is not that the same standard that God has for us as well? And He continues to forgive us. You're never disqualified from serving, but understand one thing. There will always be scars from the sin. There will always be a price to pay. 
So never take the grace of God for granted. As Romans 6 says, what shall we continue to sin so that God's grace may increase in our life? How foolish that is to think that way. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? So as we look at this, it's important also back in Luke's passage to recognize that um, in, for our understanding of the passage to note a time gap between verses 13 and 14, which we don't see mentioned or noted in here, but the events that are recorded in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 4, verse 45, took place during this time period. Matthew, Mark, and Luke make no note of it. Matthew briefly mentions it. If you'll turn back to Matthew uh, chapter 4 and look at verse 23, we find what Jesus was busy doing. As you remember, he, was, he, was, he began his ministry. He was to do and to teach. And we find in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 a glimpse of what was going on during this period of time. And we're told that Jesus was going about in all Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So when we look at at, uh, Luke's gospel account in verse 14, we then see what's going on here. There's tremendous amount of activity that has been taking place, uh, but it was in a very quiet or obscure manner. And Dr. Stocker's life of Jesus Christ, he divides the ministry of Jesus into four, uh, four parts. The first is the year of obscurity, which we see here that I just mentioned. The second is the year of public favor. The third is the year of opposition. And fourthly is the end. And so in this period of time, this year of obscurity to some degree, we find that Jesus was busy uh, ministering as we see in Capernaum and the surrounding area. And so when we look at this quiet year of work, it's about to end as Jesus in verse 13 returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. The key word as we look at this is the word returned, meaning that there were, time, there were times during that one year where Jesus returned to Galilee, then he would leave and go away again. He would come back, etc. And it's also the place where Jesus grew up. And so his early years were spent there. So he is going to be going back to his hometown, so to speak, which will help you to understand his, 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 his uh, statement that, you know, a prophet's without honor in his hometown and among his own people. He was going back home, and he was going to reveal himself to his hometown crowd as the Savior of the world. And this is what we see taking place that's here. Notice the reception that he receives. It's like, you know what, man, this place was buzzing. You know, the news about him was spreading throughout all the district. Uh, There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of enthusiasm. News was spreading. He was the talk of the town. The local guy makes good. Everybody's talking about Jesus. And as he was teaching, he was being praised by all. They were overwhelmed by, you know, the messages that he would speak. As, As often we read through Scripture, it said, and the crowd was blown away because he spoke as one who spoke with authority. Not just one who was relaying a message, but one who spoke with the authority of God. The message of God through the lips of Jesus was real because it was the message of God through the Son of God. And they knew there was something different about the way he preached the word of God. And they were just, they were buzzed about it. You know, and notice the reception that he had, man, and and everywhere that he went, he was praised by all. Look at verse 15. Man, it was like, you know, he was praised by everyone. And this passage will clearly teach us that it's possible to praise Jesus and yet reject him as Lord. 
Later, we see that in his ministry, the same crowd that one day were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, he, and they laid down and they, they had palm branches and they waved them to him. And they recognized him as king who was going to establish the kingdom of God. And as soon as he told them something they didn't want to hear, the next day they wanted to what? They were shouting, crucify him. One day they were saying, the king has come to set up his kingdom. Praise God. And he says, but I got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. That was God's will. That's why they couldn't kill him at the end of this passage. And he walked right through them because it wasn't the will of God. God's will was Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was the will of God from the very beginning. It was the plan of God for the redemption of all mankind. The cross is God's way that man will be redeemed uh, to God himself. And so that was God's plan. And so when he said, hey, you know what? No, the kingdom's not going to be established. I've got got to go and fulfill the will of father i'm going to be crucified and peter said no you're not and jesus said get behind me satan you don't understand that's what god's plan has always been but don't get all upset about it because you know i'm gonna i'm gonna raise from the dead and meet me in galilee and and you know and there's a there's continuity of the plan of god and purpose of god don't get all bummed out about it man god's got it totally under control well, the problem is, is as we look at this, we can praise him and yet reject him as our savior. You know, I think about that today because today, you know, in, in the world that I deal with in, in the sports realm, it reminds me of, of what I call bandwagon believers. See, these were bandwagon believers. These were people who said, hey, you know what? I'm going to follow you as long as you keep telling me what I want to hear. I'm going to follow you as long as you keep doing for me what I want you to do. But we need to become those believers who say, as Job said, you know what, God? Even if you kill me, I will trust in you. We need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God, we know you're able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if he chooses not to, we're still not going to worship your stupid idol. Oh, Daniel, is your God able to deliver you from the jaws of the lion? He certainly is. But even if he chose not to, I know Daniel's love for the Lord would have been, hey, not my will be done, but yours. See, bandwagon believers praise God as long as God tells them what they want to hear. It's like people who go to angel games now. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, I, you know, it's just the world I live in, so that's kind of the way I look at it. You know, and I hear bandwagoners all the time. You know, it's like, where, where were these, you know, these are the same people that, you know, they, they wanted to get tickets to the World Series. Oh, man, I've been an Angel fan all my life. I can't wait to go. How many games you go to? Who's playing? Who plays second? Who plays left field? I, I, well, you know. I was like, what is that all about? It's like, and now... They stink. I hear that all the time. It's like, oh, you know, what a fluke last year was, huh? Well, it's like, you know what? I am sorry, but see, that's the way the world is. As long as you have something there for me, I'm on your team. But the moment you don't, that's not for me. Now, think about it. Jesus had the same problem with people. When he was feeding multitudes with a handful of materials and miraculously fed 20,000 people with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread, they were all going, this is a good gig. We'll follow you anywhere. You're our meal ticket. I see that all the time. I see that in professional sports. I see the entourage, the posse, the people that follow athletes. It's like, man, we love you, brother. We're there for you. you know, and, and we're all on your payroll, too. 
But as soon as Jesus started preaching repentance, as soon as Jesus started exposing their sin of unbelief before God, the multitude said, you know what? This is too much for us. Free, free food? We're there. Repentance? Turning from sin and turning to God? Trusting in Christ, his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection? Dying to self and becoming alive to God? Picking up my cross daily, denying myself, and picking up my cross daily, and following you? You're going to require something of me? <laughs> Wait a minute. That's something different. I didn't sign up for that. Bandwagon believers. They were followers to a degree of comfort, but they weren't fanatics. We need to become fanatics. We need to become just crazy in love with Jesus. We need to be willing to follow him wherever he leads us, even if we wouldn't personally have signed up for it, because we know we can trust him explicitly. And where he's taking us. We need to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. And lean not on our own understanding. And in all our ways acknowledge him. So that he can make our path straight. Are you a fanatic for Jesus? Or are you just comfortable. To the degree that he doesn't require anything of you. See, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening. See, a true believer is crucified with Christ, denies himself or herself daily, picks up the cross and follows him. Genuine Christianity is a death sentence. It's dying to self and becoming alive to God, dying to our own goals, our own plans, our own wills, our own aspirations our own heritage, our own background, and everything that we think is important, we consider it all rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ and Him crucified. You follow me, He would say. Leave everything behind and you follow me. Are you willing to do that? See, this crowd was going to be tested. That all said, we look at four things that we learn as it relates to this first point. Notice in verses 14 through 16, we learn it was the custom of Jesus to teach in the synagogues. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through all the district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. In verse 15, we notice that it was the custom of Jesus. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4. It was the custom of Jesus to teach the word of God. In Luke 3, 23 and also Acts 1, 1, we see that Jesus' ministry began with deeds and teaching. He began to do and to teach. That was Jesus' ministry. He began to do and to teach. And teaching in verse 15, we'll notice, indicates his ministry. Also in verse 16, it indicates his lifestyle from his youth up was to worship the Father at the synagogue. 
These synagogues or local places of worship originated during the Babylonian captivity when the Jews could not go back to the city. They couldn't go to the temple to worship God. And so all was required were ten Jews that wanted to establish a local synagogue that's where they would worship God and we would see a format or an order of service that would develop and I'll talk about in a minute. And so Jesus went into these synagogues and he would teach truth of the word of God. And so as we look at this, it's important to note that this was his custom was to teach, but also he entered the synagogue and he stood up. And this was back in Nazareth where he had grown up. And so Jesus, he didn't entertain the false notion that you can worship God in nature as well as in the appointed place. And the reason I say that is it's really important that we understand that Jesus, as was his custom, and if the Son of Man or the Son of God developed a routine or a habit, which is a good habit, by the way, you know, there are good habits and there are bad habits. There's discipline we develop that's good or bad. And the discipline that Jesus developed was that he would go into the synagogue and he would worship God throughout his youth up to his adulthood. And what he does is he sets a message for you and I, an example to follow, and that's this. Don't ever buy into the nonsense or the tactic or the strategy of the enemy that says, you know what, you don't have to go or belong to a local church. You can worship God anywhere you want. I hear that nonsense on a regular basis, and I'm here to tell you right now that it is a lie from the pit of hell. The Word of God clearly indicates that that God established local churches. Not only did they meet in synagogues and at the temple, but later as people came to faith in Christ, they would meet in local churches that were founded and planted, and God shows us that all through His Word. The guy who says, I can worship on the golf course, is deceiving himself into believing that he's on a golf course to worship God. He is on the golf course to play golf, and you come to church to worship God. Not that you can't worship God other places, but there is one one place specifically set aside so that we come together as people who have come to faith in Christ and to worship God and be instructed in the word of God and that's a local church you know what I'm saying it's so nonsensical to hear this stuff that I hear on a regular basis I go you know what that is just garbage there's no truth to it. And the example that Jesus gives us that is later revealed in the New Testament, we're told not to, not to forsake the assembling that the, together as is the habit of some, but to encourage each other, to get together, to use the gifts that God has given you and I to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The whole purpose of the body is that every person here is important to the plan of God. Every one of us are given a gift or gifts by the Spirit of God as we trust in Christ as our Savior for the work that God has given us to do before the foundation of the world. Every one of us is a necessary part of what God is doing to reach, reach mankind with the gospel and to build one another up. If you aren't serving in an area and using the gift or gifts that God has given you, then you're missing out on your part and your responsibility responsibility in serving God and expanding his kingdom. Stop sitting around on the bench, get off, get in the game, be used by God. If you don't know what your gift is, I'm going to tell you right now, this is the way it works. It's usually a passion that he gives you that nobody else seems to be seeing but you. That's the way it always works. That's the way it always works. And I always hear this going, you know, we really need somebody to work with uh, this area of our congregation. Really? You see that? Because I don't see that. So I'm thinking that maybe God's leading you to do it. Praise God, brother. That's awesome. That's beautiful. That's great because there's things, there things I just don't see. Why? Because it's not my job. 
You know, mine is to encourage you, to equip you, to, to challenge you, to, to, to come alongside, to, to point you in the right direction, to help facilitate whatever it is that God's put on your heart to do in His service for His kingdom and, and meeting the needs of His people. Do it! And you know what? And stop making excuses. When the kids are older, when I get more time, when my job slows down, blah, 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 blah. That's never, none of that's ever going to happen. It's never going to happen. You can't be faithful in much until you're faithful in little. You've got to take a step sometime, sometime, somewhere. Pray about it. And once God gives you the answer, then do it. Act on it. Don't be hearers only, but doers. Jesus gives me a tremendous example in this passage where he grew up going to the synagogue to worship God to be instructed in the Word of God. That's why worship and instruction is the foundation of God's church. So as we look at this, we see that Jesus revealed the importance of gathering together. I'll tell you what, you know, there's not a lot written about what Jesus did in his early years, but I know what one thing he was doing one day of the week, every day of the week. He was going to, as we call it today, he was going to church. He was praising God, and he was being instructed by the Word of God. And he was setting an example for us. Number two, notice the choice of passage that was, that was read that particular day in verses 17 through 19. It says, in the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. And God just convicted me as I was reading this that I shouldn't just be picking on guys who love golf. So if you're out there making excuses, doing something else, same thing applies to you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. As we look at this passage, we need to understand a typical synagogue service opened with an invocation for God's blessing. Then... There was a recitation of the traditional Hebrew confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, and know that the Lord your God is one. Then there was a prayer. Then there was the prescribed readings of the law and the prophets. It was followed by a sermon given by one of the men of the congregation or perhaps by a visiting rabbi. That's why when Jesus would be visiting and he would be in a synagogue, they would ask him to come and say a word for the, from the Lord to them. And then at the end of it, they would close with a benediction. If a priest was there, otherwise a layman would stand up and they would dismiss the meeting. So here we have Jesus being asked to read the text from the prophets, for the law had already been written. They're well into the service or the order of service at this point. And the, and the scheduled reading for the day was a passage from Isaiah. And I say, oh, what a coincidence. That Jesus showed up on the day that Isaiah 61 was to be read as the scripture reading of the day. And you say, no, there's no coincidence. Jesus walked into the synagogue that day by the plan of God, the foreknowledge of God, knowing that Isaiah 61 was the, the, the reading for the day. He read that passage. And as we look here, we see it's another example of God's perfect timing and his ultimate control of all events of life. This passage, the Jews knew quite well, was a passage that referred to the Messiah. And all those that day knew it who were sitting there. 
They were all focused on him, as we shall see. And notice the claim that he made. In verse 20, he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant who kept, kept, uh, was responsible to keep track of the scrolls. He sat down, which I like that, by the way. You know, they sat down to teach and the audience stood. You can just see how things have deteriorated over the centuries, haven't you? He sat down, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. They couldn't wait to hear what he was going to say about this passage, particularly since he stopped the passage at a very key point. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice the claim of Jesus. I always laugh when people tell me Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? What Bible are you reading from? Jesus continually claimed to be the Savior of the world. Make no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's why it's ludicrous for the world to praise him as anything less than God in human flesh, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's not a good teacher. He is not a good man. He is not a good moral person. He's not an angel. He's not a God, one of many gods. He claimed to be the Son of God, Savior of the world. And that's the only option that he gives any person who will examine the evidence. So he either is or he isn't. You either receive him as Savior or reject him. There's no middle ground. There's no room for anything else. Today, this scripture about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has been fulfilled in your hearing, for I am He. That's what He was saying. Notice this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon whom? It's upon my my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We saw that. John the Baptist didn't recognize Jesus as the Savior until God the Father says, the one upon whom the Spirit of God descends in, in the form of a dove, He is my beloved Son, and in Him I'm well pleased. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Everybody, you saw it at my baptism. Got the point? Get the message, understand the significance of what's happening here. I am the Savior of the world that you have been waiting for, that God has promised to you. Don't miss this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The word poor covers every kind of poverty. But the emphasis is on moral and spiritual poverty. It's the same word that Jesus later would use in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's saying, Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually destitute outside of the mercy and the grace of God. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who recognize that they're guilty before God, that none are righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Blessed are those who recognize in and of themselves there is no goodness whatsoever. We are spiritually bankrupt and destitute. Blessed are those who realize that are broken and contrite of heart, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they will seek God's mercy and throw themselves upon and at the foot of the cross. God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. Blessed are those. 
Happy are those who are not self-sufficient. Blessed are those, happy are those who are not leaning on their own, somehow or another, defined goodness. Blessed are those, happy are those who realize, you know what? Outside of Christ, I am lost for eternity, but through Him and through His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection, I can be a child of God by believing in His name. Blessed are those. He has come to preach to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Captives are word prisoner. Technically means prisoners of war. Those who are prisoners of war, spiritual warfare, bondage to Satan and sin and death, bondage to a sinful lifestyle and the consequence of it, bondage to the guilt that is there, bondage to lust and fear and drugs and alcohol and anger and racism. And to all who are in the prison house of sin, Jesus has come to proclaim how to be set free and, as he said, to be set free indeed. He has come to proclaim release to the captives. He has come so that you and I are no longer in bondage to sin and Satan and death. The power of his resurrection, the, 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 the word of God tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your power? You have no power over those who have trusted in Christ, who will live eternally, who have received eternal life by trusting in him. You have no claim. You have no hold. You have no more attachment to those people because they have been set free by Jesus Christ and set free indeed. As we look at this, he also said, I have come to, to set free those who are downtrodden. The word downtrodden means to be oppressed and to be broken in pieces, to be shattered and crushed. God is opposed to the proud people, but he gives grace to those who are humble. A broken and contrite heart God will never despise. You cannot come to God on your terms. You cannot come to the cross in your self-sufficiency. You cannot come to the cross thinking somehow you're religious and that's good enough. You can't come to the cross thinking you give money to this charity or that charity or you're involved in this church or that church or you read your Bible every day or whatever it is and somehow you will earn your way to the kingdom of God. God says, you know what, it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. This crowd who was hearing this being told that they was excited. They were excited because Jesus came to preach the favorable day of the Lord. Today's the day of the Lord. Anyone that God is calling, come to him today. If you are broken and, and you're a contrite of heart, you can come to him today. The cross is open for business 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The tomb is open that we can examine it so that we can see as we trust in Christ and the power of his resurrection, we can have a relationship with God. You know what? Come to God. It's the favorable day of the Lord. And he stopped reading the Isaiah's passage right there because the next verse says this. And the day of vengeance of our God. Today is the favorable day of the Lord, but don't miss, there's a day of vengeance coming of our God. Those who trust in Christ receive eternal life. Those who reject him, God will come one day and he'll judge the living and the dead. And those who are dead in their sins will be cast for all of eternity out of the presence of God in a place called the lake of fire or hell. There are no do-overs. There are no, if I'd only known, I would have trusted him. Oh, blah, blah, blah. No, there's no, there's no second chances. It's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. 
See, it's important that we recognize and understand that the audience there was thinking, man, this is great news for the other guy. This is great news for those who are sinners who need to be forgiven. This is great news for those who, you know, haven't lived a life, un, you know, unlike us. They didn't see themselves in his teaching. And when Jesus made it clear that they were indeed poor in spirit, that they were indeed spiritually in bondage, that they were indeed blind and devastated, when they realized he was talking about them, they reacted with anger. Preach it, brother. As long as it's about someone else. But now you're accusing us of being spiritually blind? You're accusing us, sons of Abraham, of being in spiritual poverty? You're accusing us who grew up in the synagogue and have always worshipped God and did the things we were supposed to do? You're accusing us of having to go to God and ask forgiveness? You're accusing us of being in need of a Savior? They praise God. When he was speaking these gracious words, but then they started, the cynicism started. Notice this. How did he expose their unbelief? Number one, by anticipating their desires in verse 23. As they begin to ask the question, but wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's kid? Who does, who does he think he is coming to our town in our synagogue and telling us that we are all blind spiritually, telling us that we are all in bondage to sin and the devil and death, telling us that we're spiritually devastated and broken in pieces? Isn't this Joseph's kid? Who does he think he is? And so Jesus, anticipating this, says in verse 23, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What is he saying? They wanted proof. We heard about all the stuff that you were doing in the other places, and we spoke well of you, but you know what? Until you do the same things for us, we don't believe you. Have you ever heard that before? How about Thomas? Oh, yeah, everybody's running around telling everybody that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. But what did Thomas say? I'm not going to believe a thing that I heard from anybody else until I see the wounds in his hand and I see the wound in his side and I put my fist in his side, my fingers in his hand, and only until you do for me what I want you to do will I then believe that you are God. And you know what? That's a strategy or tactic of the devil that we just learned about the last time we're together. What is it? Thou shalt not test the Lord your God. God, if you're really God, prove it to me by doing this. You don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks that I've had that whispered in my ear. And I got to reject it as a lie from the pit of hell. God, you don't have to do anything for me to prove that you are who you claim to be. You speak the word and my soul will be healed. That's all I need is that your word says all that I need. But I'll tell you what, in those opportune times as we read about, in the still quiet times of the night, the devil's just beating me up. 
But you know what? Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. See, we don't have to test God. And if you're praying for me, don't you dare test God. And have, to have him use me as an example to teach you how to pray. Don't you test God. <laughs> don't you do that now. I'm trusting you. Our prayer is this. God, your will be done. Your will be done. You be glorified. Your will be done. Your kingdom be expanded. You don't have to do anything to prove to me that you're God. My life over the last 25 years and Christ living within me is all the proof that I need. It validates everything that God says in his word. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away and all things become new. You don't have to prove to me anything. You've already demonstrated enough in the course of my life. You're a good God. See, he was saying to them, you want more proof. You don't need any more proof. You need to have faith. You don't need any more evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. You know what you need? You need a broken and contrite heart. You need to see sin in your life so that you can repent and respond to the finished work of Christ upon the cross. Notice this also. He assumed that they would say this. He said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is without welcome in his hometown and among his own people. They're like, hey, you know what? They wrote him off because, hey, we saw you grow up. But if anybody should have recognized his perfect life, it was them. They saw it firsthand throughout the course of his life. They saw the perfection of his life. They never saw him sin. They saw him live a perfect life. And yet they who were closest to him rejected him because they couldn't see the forest through the trees. You know what, folks? Sometimes we need to step back and stop looking at life through our own jaded lenses and ask God the question, what is it that you're trying to do for the, through this for your purposes and for your kingdom? And you know what? I, I, I just got myopia, man. I mean, I got blinders on. We tend to see things only as we see that, and we need to step back and allow God to show us what he's doing on a bigger picture. They couldn't step back and see the evidence because they had gotten so close to Jesus. They were so close and yet so far away. They were like the rich young rulers. There ever guy in scripture that got so close to Jesus that was at the feet of Jesus and came away worse than when he went to meet with them. They were so close, but they were so far away. And so as we look at this, we'll wrap it up by here's his answer to them. And notice what he does. He says, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was there as a widow. He was there as a widow. Notice this. He answers them with well-known illustrations from their past that is recorded in Scripture. And he's saying, you know what? Pick up and read 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. And what he's saying to them, remember, there's a whole bunch of widows in Israel, but God didn't send the prophet to any of them. He sent him to a Gentile woman who was dying in a famine. And when the messenger of God came to her, she said, I'm preparing my last meal for my son and I, and then we will die and let us die in peace. And Elijah said to her, you're not going to die. God has sent me to you, but 
before you go and prepare that meal, prepare some for me first, and then God will honor you for that. Now think about this. If somebody came to you and wanted your last meal, would you give it to that person? God sent me to you and said, give me your last meal. Now today we'd be like, yeah, right. Yeah, what else did God say? But, you know, we can check things, you know, we can check scripture today to see whether God said it or not. But you know what she did? She prepared a meal, she gave it to him, and God honored her what? Her faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it was reckoned unto her as righteousness because what? She believed in the word of God through the messenger of God. And what he was saying to them is, hey, the Gentile woman had more faith than all those in Israel. And if that isn't upsetting you enough now, let me remind you about Nahum. Remember him? He was a leper. And he was a leper who was dying. And God sent his messenger, Elisha, to him. And God's word said to him, go down to the river and dip in the river seven times and you will be healed of leprosy. You know what Naaman said? Hey, you know what? Tell me to do some great thing and I'll do it, but I'm not humbling myself to go down into a river and dip myself seven times. I'm not going to do it. And God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And all of Nahum's friends around him said, hey, listen, man, you know what? If he would have told you to do something great, would you not have done it? And he went, well, yeah. He goes, well, why won't you do this? If you'll do the great thing, why don't you humble yourself and do what he's asking you to do? And you know what he did? He went down in the river, and I know, I just know it because that's what I would be like myself. Down, I dip once, come back up. Dip twice, come back up. Man, this is the dumbest thing I ever did. This is so humiliating. This is so embarrassing. This is so blah, blah, blah. Dip again, dip again, dip again, dip it up, up seven times, and he's healed. And what's the message? God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And you know how they responded to those illustrations? They were filled with rage as they heard these things. They rose up and cast them out of the city, led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down from the cliff. They praised him, yet rejected him as Savior. Don't be guilty of the same sin. Don't praise Jesus and reject him as your Savior. And there's only one way that he can become Lord and Savior of your life. And that is, you do according to the word of God. What is God's word for man? Repent. Turn from sin and turn to God. Trust in Jesus Christ's death upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. And receive him with humility as the savior of your life. Because there is no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. There is no other way. It's by God's grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. In closing, as you think of all this, it's possible to praise Jesus yet be guilty for all eternity of rejecting him as Savior. As I mentioned, we live in a world who calls Jesus a good man, great moral teacher, good example. Some call him an angel, some call him a God, one of many gods. But when it comes to the only Savior of the world, no, they react in anger at that thought. 
In closing, a large prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. And on the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of their mission churches would come and they would come together and present themselves in the parent church uh, for a combined communion service. And in those mission churches, many of them were located in the slums of major cities. And there were some tremendous stories of testimonies of people who had come to faith in Christ and lives that were transformed as a result. Every kind of sin imaginable, every kind of criminal that you can think of had been touched by the mercy and the grace of God. And now there they were all at this one place and one time kneeling together at the communion rail to remember Jesus' death. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former thief kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England. The very judge who had sent him to jail where he had, been, where he had served for seven years. And after his release, this thief had been converted and became a Christian worker. It says, after the service, the judge was talking to the pastor. And as they're walking together, he said to him, he said, Hey, did you see that this morning? Did you notice? Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And the pastor said, Yeah, I did. I noticed that. He said, It was a marvelous miracle of grace indeed. The judge then inquired. He said, But, but to whom do you speak? He says, well, I speak of the thief who you had convicted and sent to prison. And he said, oh, no, I wasn't thinking of the thief. I was thinking of myself. And he said, you were thinking of yourself. Why would you think of yourself? He said, because the greater of the two miracles was that I grew up in a home where I was taught right from wrong. I was encouraged to do those things that were right. I grew up in a church, and I went to church every week. And I received communion as a youth, and I was this and I was that, and I did all of these things, and I studied hard, and I got good grades, and I was called into law, and I went into the law practice. And then I became a judge, and I've always you know, stood for that which was right and wrong. He said, and because of that, I was confused for many years that somehow I was good enough to enter into the kingdom of God. And it was only as I was convicted of my sin that I recognized that I'm not perfect and everything that God says about me is true. That as the Apostle Paul said, all the things that I considered of great value, I now consider them rubbish. I flush them all down the toilet for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he looked at this pastor and he said, of the two miracles that were there that day, I believe that mine was the greater miracle. Because it was harder for me to see my spiritual destitute, my spiritual desperation, my spiritual brokenness. It was easy for the thief to turn to Christ because he had nowhere left to turn. But for me, I leaned upon myself. He said, the greater of the two miracles was that I was convicted of my sin and my need for forgiveness. You know, there are many of us who have grown up going to Christian churches and going to Bible study and doing all the things that you've been asked to do or required of you who are in the same position as those in Nazareth that day that heard Jesus Christ clearly explain the gospel. You have put your faith and trust in yourself and in your own goodness or in your own efforts or in your own works or in your own church background or in your own abilities to do the things you think are the right things to do versus the things that are wrong. And I'm here to clearly tell you, as Jesus told the audience that day, that you know what? That a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. That every human being must need to see and recognize that we are all sinners before God that we all need the grace of God, that we all need to respond by mercy, by, by faith to God's mercy, that we all need to humbly come to the cross as Naaman did the leper and as the widow did, as he humbly said, you know what, I have nowhere left to turn but to you. 
This is so much bigger than me that I can't do it on my own. A leper understood that there was nowhere else to go, and God removed everything in his life so he can clearly see his need to go to God. If you're here today and you're leaning upon any self-ascribed goodness, I'm here to warn you and tell you that there's nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in any of us. And the only good thing that ever happens to us is when we come to the cross and trust in Christ and the power of his resurrection and his shed blood for us, then he becomes righteousness for us unto God. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Today is the favorable day of the Lord. Today is the day to trust in him, to turn to him. If God's calling you, do so today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the clarity of the message of God. We thank you that you help us to see by your laws that it's a mirror that we look into and we fall short, that we're sinners, that we're not righteous, we're not right, we're wrong before you. God, I pray for those who are here that maybe have been leaning on their own self-ascribed goodness, that today they'd recognize their need to come to the cross and to trust in Jesus Christ to trust in his death upon the cross, his shed blood on their behalf, to go to the tomb and see that it is empty and have faith that he is raised from the dead and he's alive today and he is there to offer eternal life. The word of God says, Behold, I stand at the door of your life and knock, and anyone who opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me to have fellowship with God. Lord, we thank you. We love you for the truth of your message. You don't have to prove anything to us. You've already given us all the evidence that we'll ever need. It's not evidence that holds us back. It's a proud heart that's in opposition to your plan. God, break us, crush us, bring us to the cross. And for those of, you, those of us who know Christ, that you would break us and crush us to the point where you can work through us so that you get all the praise and all the glory for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who may have trusted in Christ, I encourage you, we have a prayer table out on the patio every week. There are people there who will pray with you, who are there for you, who will encourage you in, the, in your walk with the Lord. As I mentioned, Jesus Christ always called people publicly. And so I just challenge you, if Jesus Christ is now Lord and Savior of your life, that you take a public stand, that you let someone know that invited you to come, that you let someone know at the patio on the prayer table that you've made a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he's your Savior and you need to know more about your walk with the Lord. And that's what we're here to do, to help you, to equip you for the work and the life that God has prepared for you to do as you move forward from here. Continue to pray as Garrett takes his public